Observing in Hawaii and Sketching with Eric Clasius on episode 325 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. I'll read a brief bio here in a moment, but Shane, we have a couple Patreon supporters to thank first. Yeah, big thanks to Clayton and Richard, our newest Patreon supporters. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, as always, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. It helps keep the show going and uh, we uh, we just like to say thanks. So thank you. Eric Plazis is an amateur astronomer living in Calgary, Alberta. He is an active volunteer in the RASC, serving on the Calgary RASC executive and is a counselor on the National Council of the RASC. He loves getting out under the dark rural skies of Alberta with other amateur astronomers and members of the RASC. His preferred mode of transportation around the sky is star hopping with Dobsonians, both big and small. A carpenter by trade, he has built an eight-inch suitcase Dobsonian telescope that can be easily thrown or very carefully placed into a backpack and taken on hikes in the mountains or in carry-on luggage, like when flying to Hawaii, which we'll get to in a moment. Sketching became an important part of his observing experience in 2019, and this now drives his constant hunt for dark skies and local observers to head out under the stars with. Good evening, Eric. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We were doing this on a Tuesday evening, usually record on Sunday morning, but we've had a change in schedule. So thanks so much for accommodating us. Absolutely. Yeah. Glad I could join. Life is short. Got to take advantage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. This isn't our first go around. We had a nice conversation. I think it was about a year ago, give or take, about Sky News. And you wrote a beautiful, very nice Sky News magazine article with us and for us. And, and that came out in the Sky News magazine last summer. So thank you so much for doing that. Absolutely. That was a lot of fun putting that together. I always thought it was so cool how this podcast has really put its own kind of community together of visual astronomers around the world. It's been a blast doing it. And in fact, we received a lot of positive emails from folks based on your article about us and, and the podcast. And we had several people refer back and say that's how they found out about the podcast. So unfortunately, Sky News is is officially now no more. You know, it sort of did its job while it was around. Yes, it will be missed. I do want to mention one other thing. I, I don't think we have it in the show notes, but um, just another reference to uh, Eric kind of on the podcast. Um, and that's one of the coolest observations that I, I can ever think of. And that's your observation of the James Webb Space Telescope on New Year's Eve with, with I think, a 14-inch Cassegrain in, in yes. the Calgary Rask's uh, Observatory. Um, so we talked a lot about that on a, on episodes around that time because it was just, it was mind-blowing and, and you sketched it. And I just Man. think that's one of the neatest observations ever. That was such a cool night. And it was one of those moments where it's now or never. Mm -hmm. And the, the weather was freezing cold. We <laughs> suffered greatly to get that observation, <laughs> but it was so worth it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's incredible. And like you say, uh, it was that moment or never. And really, it's like at this point, nobody will ever get that observation, I don't think. So that's yes. uh, that's amazing. Because that one took you a few kicks at the can to get, I think, in some pretty brutally cold weather 
where you, you had did. to go on a few nights, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. And uh, there was a moment where the James Webb had receded from Earth far enough that it was no longer visible. Um, however, shortly after it unfurled its heat shield and thus increased its surface area greatly, that's when its reflectivity had a huge skyrocket again. And boom, it was visible again for only a brief time. And at that point, it was like three quarter million kilometers away, which is just mind blowing. (laughs) Absolutely. And then the size of it, like it's a tiny object out there too, which is just wild. So I mean, like, honestly, every day I'm amazed at what telescopes, like the simplicity of telescope optics, what you can see with them. It's, it's so cool. Just to reiterate, this is a visual observation. He wasn't taking an image of it through a 14-inch telescope, which is quite incredible. But you did a sketch of it. And then I was asked to do a, uh, just volunteer to do a presentation at the uh, Lifeline Learning Center at the university. And you permitted me to use the sketch. And I used it as a bit of a teaser for the presentation where I was going to release a never-before-seen image of the James Webb telescope. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. In outer space. People enjoyed it. People enjoyed it. It was good fun. Thank you for that. That's great. Absolutely. (laughs) You've had some other uh, adventures. One of them that uh, stuck out in my mind was when, and I think this was during the pandemic, and you took an eight-inch reflector and a group of people up into the mountains. You did like a hike with the eight-inch reflector. Am I recalling that correctly? Yeah, yeah. It was the the night of the Perseid meteor shower. I think it was in August of 2020. We got together, met up with a bunch of people in uh, at a trailhead in the mountains. And yeah, we all kind of left the parking lot at sunset and went hiking into a lake in the backcountry. And I brought my eight inch daub with me in the backpack and we, we set it up out, out there. We, we hiked in only about five kilometers, but oh man, the skies were spectacular. And we had the eight inch telescope, but honestly, the, the telescope was the sideshow because of course it was the proceed meteor shower and we were just taking that in and it was jaw droppingly beautiful. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, you know, beautiful scenery and extremely dark skies. Um, can't ask for much more than that. Absolutely. Then we missed you at uh, Grasslands in 2021 when you when you stopped by. I had just purchased a cabin and I was trying to figure out how to decommission it for the for the winter and was all wrapped up into that and just couldn't make it. But it sounded like uh, you had some pretty good skies down there and the wind came up, but did you drag your tw- your 17 and a half inch telescope down there in 21? Oh yeah. We had really good nights, dark, clear nights. One of the nights was super windy, uh, so much so that uh, I took it down for fear of it blowing over again. Um, it has blown over before. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different story. But yeah, I took it down because I was, I was really worried it was going to blow over again and and at some point i was like you know what we're only here once just set it up keep a hand on it all the time and and just hold that baby down and get some shaky views of 
beautiful open clusters and whatever else you could see with it just shaking away, but it was still awesome. Okay, now you have to tell us the story about when that telescope was over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That was actually only a month before. Um, it was at the Alberta Star Party, which is kind of held in eastern Alberta in the Badlands. And okay. the Badlands are kind of known for, you know, wind, <laughs> as is Saskatchewan. But yeah, it was during the daytime, this telescope was kind of new to me and wasn't fully accustomed to how to pin it down properly during the daytime and the winds picked up in the daytime and oh man that thing went down hard I mean that thing is tall it's about eight feet tall when it's pointing straight up so like imagine the momentum of that boom wow right onto the ground somehow it's survived i mean like telescopes oh, are man. amazing <laughs> i feel like we we baby them too much seriously yeah. like these things yeah. they're durable they're mm -hmm. bulletproof well richard Husiak, uh who's been on the show as well um and and chris and i you know we observe with him quite often in the grasslands when he was at the saskatchewan summer star party in cypress hills he has a 10 inch daub and a big storm came through there, high winds, it blew over, but I think it came through at night. Rick will um, correct me here if I'm wrong, but I'm not sure if it was, if he just stayed sleeping in his tent or how it all played out. But anyway, when he came to, whether it was the next morning or later that night, uh, the dog was in a, a pool of water on its side, <laughs> oh, no. but turned it right side up. It's a cardboard tube dog. So, you know, there was a little bit of swelling on the cardboard, but everything was fine and he observed that night so <laughs> to your awesome. point they're they're pretty resilient instruments they really are yeah. yeah i need to add a section into like the sort of standard questions and we we could have get like what's your biggest telescope disaster experience <laughs> we're, we're <laughs> yeah. having uh clark muir on here and in, in a few weeks time i was chatting with him over email today and we went up to this really dark site up in the bruce peninsula and this huge crazy thunder and lightning storm came in. I guess there was like tornadoes in places. And my wife and I bought a tent from her sister and it was just like a regular camping tent. And it was raining so hard that the tent was like three inches from our faces. It was, oh, it was really terrifying in that. And there was all this wind. And so we, we get out of the tents afterwards and Clark had left his, his handmade eight inch Dobsonian set up. And it was no still way. set up and he walks through, he's like, oh, this is great. And he looks inside and it's got about, you know, seven or eight inches of water inside. <laughs> <laughs> and he oh, just like man. tips it out. The water comes like pouring out, like from a bucket, <laughs> truly a light bucket. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's never, incredible. It's like an aquarium. Fish yeah, bowl. exactly. <laughs> he re he rebuilt that into some sort of portable scope uh, as well. Eric, you've, you've done lots of sketching. We'll, we'll get to that shortly, but I had, I had to stick this in somewhere. This is that sketch of, uh, well, here, why don't you tell us about what this is, a sketch of that, that we're looking at and, and what's yeah. happening here. This is a sketch from a couple of years ago. Uh, this is M3 and uh, the comet. I can't even remember what, what was this comet's name? as it was passing by M3 in December, uh, about a year and a half ago. Yeah. Super amazing night. The, the comet was only about sixth magnitude. 
um, but it, it, it approached quite close to M3. And there were a number of Calgary members who were super stoked to get out of the city, drive out to some dark skies super early in the morning before work and, and try to make this observation. So we were dodging clouds. It was very cloudy around the area, but we were super dedicated to trying to see this event and uh, the clouds parted only just in time before the morning light broke Um, but this was actually um, kind of a composite sketch of a larger field than what my telescope can capture so this was like panning around the field of of the these two objects and and capturing all of the all of the things in one sketch i think speaking of panning wasn't this the one of the pan stars comets i forget which what the designation was but i think it was one of the pan stars wasn't it i believe so that rings a bell and why i put this one in not only do i really like this this sketch an awful lot one thing that a a good and even just a regular sketch does for me when i look at people's sketches is they make me just want to go out and observe more. It, I don't know. There's something about, I like reading about astronomy and I enjoy looking at photos and, and, you know, thinking about gear and that. But when I see a good sketch or, or really any sketches at all that people are doing, it just really just makes me want to go out and see that stuff for myself. Unlike anything else, it just, it's very motivating for me anyway. I'm not sure if you find the same thing with your sketches or other people's sketches, but. Absolutely. Yeah. I find, I mean, it's because for me, I find they're relatable. Like when I look at a sketch, it's, it really does feel like I'm looking at the object through the eyepiece or it reminds me of that experience. So yeah, it's, it's very much like, oh man, yeah, I want to go see that view too. The other thing about this image that made me want to put it in our, our notes here this evening was that I believe when you, you sent this along, you referred to Howard Banich's sketches and how he was using a similar technique with his larger instruments. And I thought, oh, well, that's yes. cool because of course we hadn't communicated with Howard back then. And then we recently had him on the show. So I was just curious if uh, that's right. That's right. Cause I, I think it was only four months before I made this sketch. It was in, uh, it must've been in the September 2000 or September, 2021 issue of sky and telescope i think is when when he had that article on sketching the entire cygnus loop with his 28 inch Mm -hmm. and that was the first time i i had never thought of doing a mosaic sketch before but after seeing that article i was like whoa that is cool yeah (laughs) so it's kind of a yeah like this view can't be seen like this through the eyepiece mm-hmm. in one single field of view, but putting it all together by panning around and taking a good amount of time with it, it, it kind of brings that whole field of the sky to life. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing I really appreciate about this sketch is that I always like the black background with, you know, the whites or grays on top creating the image because this is the view through the eyepiece, you know, with the black background and it just, it's such a natural representation of your visual observation. So I, I'm a huge fan of sketching, 
uh, I just don't do it, but I love looking at, uh, you know, your guys' sketches and anybody else who, who does it. How the heck did you even get interested in astronomy to begin with, Eric? It all started in Costco. <laughs> As all good things do, right? The common story. Yeah, seriously. No, yeah, I was, I don't know, early te- teenager, maybe 13 years old. We lived out of the city quite a ways, like 40 minutes north of Edmonton okay. in Alberta. And so we had really dark skies out there, which was awesome. But yeah, just going in Costco and walking around, we we saw this telescope. And I remember telling my parents like, wow, this, this looks cool. Like it's just covered <laughs> in all these epic astro photos of like glowing <laughs> nebulae so stoked and yeah they they actually bought it and we brought it home set it up and seriously like the first thing we looked at was a, a waxing crescent moon in the oh, early evening sky oh man like that was that was it that deep blue sky behind the moon with the earth shine like i hadn't even noticed the earth shine looking at the moon naked eye uh but looking in the eyepiece like i was flipping out <laughs> yeah and that was pretty much the the start public observing events there's nothing like showing somebody either saturn and them seeing the rings for the first time or any phase of the moon uh, oh, yeah. and, and all of the detail, it, 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 it blows everybody's mind. And even me looking through proper telescopes for approximately, you know, 20 ish years here, I'm still blown away by the views of the moon every single time. It's just, yeah. the detail is so phenomenal. It really is. I feel like people generally take it for granted. I certainly take it for granted. I hate the moon. (laughs) I specifically plan all of my observing events so that the moon is not in the sky. And like, yeah, I honestly, I'm trying lately to, uh, to appreciate the moon again, circle back to it. And, and I actually had a really good session with the moon just this last weekend. I looked at the moon this past weekend, but it was it was so blindingly bright. We were out at a dark sky site-ish, just 10 minutes from my house, but it's still like portal 3.5 or something. And then, oh man, I put the moon in my new eyepiece and it was just so painful to look at. That was it. Oh yeah. It's like searing. It's yeah. like a laser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Did your family or anybody else really cultivate that interest or was it something where they enabled you through getting this telescope and then you were on your own or did they really help bring you along into the astronomy path in in the observing itself i was it was very much a solo endeavor uh but my dad loves tinkering with stuff he's he's a carpenter and and just loves working on things making things better he's kind of got an engineer mind to him and so this, this hilarious Costco telescope with like the most horrific rickety <laughs> equatorial mount, like he would set out trying to like make modifications to the mount, like <laughs> he'd, you know, weld parts to it to improve the way you could tilt the latitude adjustments. Yeah. Uh, we, we got a, 
uh, an electric motor drive for that scope, which is hilarious that you could even get one for this thing because it was like so basic and it was awful. And even that he like <laughs> took all the electronics apart and like put a dial on it so you could fine tune the speed of the motor. Wow. Like, so he went all out and, uh, and definitely helped improve the equipment such that it improved the observing experience. So that was, that was huge. That was a huge element that I think kept me going. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And certainly in this hobby, it's good to either be handy or know somebody that is handy because, you know, it, it doesn't really matter, you know, whether you're buying a Costco telescope or, you know, pick your brand, there's probably something you're going to want to do to tweak it or make it just run a little bit better. So yeah, that's absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. And now that you have, I believe you have your own children now, are they tagging along in your ast astronomy journeys? I think I recall where you were telling me some stories about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. My son is eight years old and actually in 2019, he would have been five four or five years old and we were at the alberta star party and he won a telescope at, as a door prize nice. wow it was so epic <laughs> so he was he was absolutely thrilled he has his own telescope now <laughs> and he's still we take that thing out everywhere we go it's like on every camping trip every observing trip we go we go out to the dark sites and he's got that telescope with them and He's working on the Explore the Universe oh, wow. uh, right now, which is the RESC observing program. And last weekend, actually, we were out on an observing trip just north of, of Calgary here at a, at a dark site. And he forgot his, his observing logbook. And it was like <laughs> this moment in the car, like there's no going back for it. But he was like devastated <laughs> oh my observing logbook like what am i gonna do oh i can relate i can that tragedy it's so amazing i always love it when you're at the because i've been to a lot of star parties and they do like the telescope giveaway and it's always so much fun when the young person wins the telescope yeah, and every totally. everybody feels that they're that child again totally, winning like, that ah, telescope that is so cool <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah the joy was tangible <laughs> it was so cool we were talking to berta about younger observers and i have uh, some nephews that have gotten into uh, observational astronomy as well and it's so much fun to sit around with them and talk about their observing because their observing experience, their their unique observing experiences all on their own. But when they're telling their observing stories, it's just like talking to you or Shane or Berta. It's yeah, it's, it almost feels like this really uh different connection with somebody. So like I go inside and my parents are like, Oh, like what were you guys talking about? I'm like, Well, no, they were just telling me their observing stories. It was amazing. They were like, Well, <laughs> were they interesting? I'm like, well, they were to me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I know you're right. They they are they are the same stories just through the the perspective of a child. It's it's yeah. almost like more electric because yeah. 
it's so new to them and so full of discovery that mm. it's contagious. It's so contagious. Eric, do you ever use binoculars or are you just strictly telescope? Oh man, I have this thing with binoculars. I hate <laughs> binoculars. <laughs> Which is like, yeah, seriously. The show like, is I, now over. Thank you everybody for listening. And, uh, we'll like, see you on the next yeah. episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Like I, I know a number of, of good friends that just are in love with binoculars. Like they, you know, have amazing binoculars, have amazing you know, parallelogram mounts have invested a lot of money in that, but like, they just don't fulfill for me. <laughs> but honestly, like going back to your episode a, a while ago with Robert, who's fabricating his own design of binoculars. Like I loved what he was doing with um, trying to improve the design of binoculars such that you can improve collimation for example mm -hmm. like that's the number one reason why i just am so frustrated with binoculars is because they're just you know never quite collimated and i'm like trying to torque and twist the binoculars to make them collimate and yeah, eventually just throw them in the garbage <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm glad you mentioned that eric because i don't think we've ever had this opinion voiced on the on the podcast and it you just triggered a memory for me actually my brother he's not an astronomer but um we love the outdoors we do a lot of hiking and things like that together and I always bring a pair of binoculars for birding or just seeing what's in the distance. And I would always like say, Hey, do you want to have a view? And he would say no. Um, and I'm like, why don't you bring binoculars? And he's like, I hate them because, <laughs> because I think to your point, the binoculars he always had looked through were never collimated. He's like, man, I can never merge the images. I see yeah. two of everything. I hate it. And yeah. then finally he latched on to a pair of binoculars that worked for him. And now he, you know, he brings them out when we, when we do our outdoor activities, but I think it's a really important point that, you know, maybe if somebody has been frustrated with uh, the usage of binos for those reasons, yeah, here's the explanation. And, yeah. uh, you know, having something like what Robert is building might solve that for some people, which would yes. be pretty awesome because it, it, it works. Yeah. yeah. I love, I loved hearing his project about you know trying to overcome those design challenges that have been kind of just ignored by uh, mass-produced binoculars for so long mm -hmm. but I do like I, I definitely have had some amazing views through like good quality binoculars but um, the, the price point mm -hmm. for really good binoculars is definitely uh, an obstacle yeah yeah <laughs> it's agreed yeah they're they're really expensive to to get a good good pair of binoculars i remember i bought a pair of vixen geomas which were i'm trying to think and this is quite a few years ago i think they're around 400 dollars, give or take and they're a beautiful very lightweight like a 21 or a 22 ounce 7 by 50 and I had had them for a couple of years and had moved to Ontario. And my observing partner there, Tim, phenomenal observer, 
like you, same opinion, didn't like binoculars and similar things. And one Eddie said, why do you use those things? And I'm like, well, they're, you know, they're good. You can see things. You can find stuff quick. He goes, yeah, I never found that with binoculars. I said, here, try these. And then he tried them. He was like, oh, well, these are good. How much are they? And then I told him, he said, I would just rather buy a new eyepiece. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It is true. I probably would would go towards the eyepiece too. <laughs> and then just borrow a friend's that have really good binoculars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what telescopes have you, did you own after that initial Costco scope and uh, maybe progressing into what you have now? We talked a little bit about that, but just to kind of line it up for people. Yeah. I had uh, an eight inch job that my dad helped me build when I was a teenager. Cool. Uh, we got a commercial mirror and some awesome like 1950s book from the Edmonton RESC library nice. <laughs> with like a telescope Dobsonian design. There's actually, oh man, I totally forgot about this until just now, but like in the base, like the, the azimuth bearing, the design called for using a vinyl, like an record. actual record. record. Yeah. That was John Dobson's original design is to use a record. Yes. So like there is literally a, a record of like Russian choral music in this telescope and it's just like singing away all night long. It's, it's so awesome. But yeah, I had that eight inch telescope for a very long time, like probably almost 20 years, just hauling that thing all over the place. I had a rigid tube, sonnet tube, like the thing was built like a tank but then um well you remember the the saturn jupiter conjunction in in 2020 yep. like the night that everyone is waiting for we we go out the whole family we're we're set up have this beautiful clear view to the west it's getting dark out i have my terrible crappy binoculars <laughs> scanning the western sky trying to like wait for that first moment where I can see Jupiter and Saturn as it's getting dark and all this sudden behind me I hear this like wham and I turn around and my son is standing there looking up at me with the most horrified look in his face and the telescope is like smashed on the ground oh, no. totally like tube is crushed mirror rolled out of the tube it's like in the snow and i'm like looking at the western sky jupiter and saturn are like just about to become visible and i don't have a telescope i like I died inside. <laughs> I literally oh, died no. inside. And then that whole night, my buddy is texting me like five million times. Like, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever seen through a telescope. Where's your sketch, Eric? This, I can't believe this view. Oh my God. And I'm just like, I can't believe this is happening. How is this actually <laughs> happening? <laughs> so I never even saw it. Oh, gee. <laughs> oh, too funny. Life is yeah. life is awesome. But then the mirror was fine. 
both mirrors and then that was when uh, the birth of the suitcase dob came so they're the same mirrors um and i rebuilt it into this suitcase dob model that um actually came from cloudy nights a guy in europe who has a, a design for a super compact dobsonian and i kind of was looking at his pictures and you know drawing up some plans and just built it and put it together and that's that's my new eight inch so what did you progress to after that eight inch it seems you, you kept it around for a while but i know you've had some other equipment uh what else is in your stable recently about two years ago now actually there was a 17 and a half inch discovery dobsonian that came up for sale in edmonton which is only three hours drive north so i i actually picked that up it was a used telescope about 11 years old has uh, a tracking drive in it oh wow which is a game changer holy smokes really i was not looking for a telescope that tracks and and this one came up and it had it and it was the right moment and i got it and i am so glad that it tracks it's like wow game changer mm -hmm. well that's that must be almost essential for somebody who enjoys sketching especially with a big dog absolutely like yes because mm -hmm. you're you're constantly working at high powers like the mm -hmm. lowest possible power i can get on that telescope with a 35 mil pan optic is 63 times that's my lowest power. So I'm, I'm typically, uh, well over a hundred power all the time. So tracking absolutely with, with sketching, it's critical. At least I've, I've gotten really used to it. Yeah. I think, uh, Howard Banage and Alistair Ling were talking a little bit about that when they were on the show and their experiences with using sort of larger and larger instruments was that that tracking really does become quite key in order to uh, be making those kind of observations, like you're saying. It does, because it really unlocks the opportunity to just sit on an object and, and not be disturbed by chasing it constantly. Yeah. Like you can just really sit with it and linger and let the details come out. That's why I bought the uh, AZEQ6, even though... I'm not going to use a lot of the uh, go-to capabilities as as much, but just to be able to point it at something and have it track along. Even this past week when I was testing out an eyepiece, I uh, got one of those Explorer Science 17 mil, 92 degrees, and I had that in my tack, 100 millimeter, but tracking. And I didn't even really set the tracking up proper. I just sort of jammed it in and pointed it and turned yeah. the sidereal tracking on. It would stay in the field of view for like 20 or 30 minutes, which was nice because we were really trying to run the eyepiece through its paces and we didn't do any sketching or anything, but it was, it was a lot of fun just to be able to have it there and then go and look through Mike's Takahashi 78 and back and forth to mine. Do you have any other instruments that you're using for sketching and observing? Uh, not really. Although the, I, I have used a number of instruments, for example, our club observatory south of calgary we have a 14 inch cassegrain which is 
the only Schmidt Cassegrain I've really used a lot. I actually did quite a few of my Messier sketches using that telescope. Um, and then also we have quite a number of club telescopes. We have a 12 inch uh, five Dobsonian that I've used for a couple of wider field objects. And also we have um, a 13 inch, I think it's an F4 telescope. It might even be a bit faster than F4, but it's, hmm. it's again, that thing, good aperture, super wide fields. It is a workhorse. I love that thing. So yeah, I love using a bunch of different instruments for sketching, but like, honestly, the, the club having the equipment at our uh, fingertips through the club is so handy. I love using like different telescopes all the time, mixing it up. Yeah. One of the huge advantages of a club to me, um, is, is the opportunity to use a whole bunch of different gear that maybe you don't have yourself and it yes. can tell you what you like and maybe don't like. I'm not sure I would own a hydrogen alpha telescope if I was never a member of the Regina club, but as a member looking through some of the other folks's H alpha telescopes, I was, my mind was blown and I, yes. you know, I really wanted one then. So absolutely, um, you know, that's like, I just love that aspect of the club in addition to like, you know, the socialization and finding yeah. observing buddies and things like that. But, uh, you know, just being able to test stuff is pretty cool. Yeah. And I find sometimes there are objects where, you know, you could get a better view if you had a different instrument. And like, yeah. sometimes you can plan that out. Like for example, a couple of years ago at the Alberta star party, I really wanted an awesome view of the Andromeda galaxy while we're out there, which I can't really get with a 17 and a half inch daub. Like, oh, nice core. Like that's <laughs> all you can see in our club. We have a four inch Teleview refractor and that thing was spectacular and so much fun. Like, yeah, having these certain instruments that are best used for particular uses, particular objects, like that's where it's a lot of fun to mix and match your observing plans and, and use different instruments to improve the view of those things. We've corresponded quite a bit. We're on the same sketching forum with the RESC. So I've always marveled at your sketches. They're quite beautiful. And I was just wondering, what is your background for drawing and sketching, like, do you have uh, an arts background of any sort or were you taught drawing? Uh, how did you get into that? How did you get into the astronomical sketching? I have no sketching background at all. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I'm a really good at drawing uh, like a stick man. <laughs> and <laughs> that's about it. Actually, like in my work, I'm a carpenter, uh, we, we do a lot of sketching, you could say, of, you know, conceptualizing ideas, plans, that kind of thing, like super basic sketching. That's kind of the limit of, of my sketching skills. But other than that, honestly, astro sketching, to me, when I first heard about it, I'm like, oh, this looks doable, like some dots some smudges <laughs> cool like i can do this lots of practice i actually did start sketching when i was a teenager 
and just super simple, simple stuff, but didn't really get into it in a bigger way until about four or five years ago. What prompted you to, to start doing it then? I think, actually, I, I think the first catalyst was stumbling upon a set of tutorials on the RASC website by Carol Lacomiak. Super great tutorials for like, like just super brief, very brief. Like here's how to sketch in globular cluster and a galaxy and a nebula. You know, after some practicing sketching from photographs in daytime, just to like practice these techniques. That's when I kind of realized, oh, this is this is a thing. This is cool. Like I enjoy this. I could I could see doing this. And then during COVID, one of my projects became like I I just suddenly had this idea of like I want to sketch all Messier objects in one calendar year and just like as the seasons go like pick them off one by one and sketch them all and that was really a project that turned the page like it's like okay now I'm sketching regularly, consistently for, you know, a whole year. And that really developed a love for, for sketching mm-hmm. now all the time, whenever I'm observing. What techniques are you using for sketching? Um, I was wondering, I know that that sketch that we were showing earlier of the comet and the globular cluster was, I believe, just black charcoal on white paper that was inverted in software. Are you primarily using that technique or are you using some of the uh, white charcoal and white ink on the black paper yet? Primarily white paper with graphite pencils. I definitely find I can get sharper stars and like sharper details. Actually, the one tool I find the most important of anything is the mechanical eraser. It's so like you can really dial in some fine detail with that thing. Uh, life without that is just like no good. It's as important as the pencils. I still haven't really gotten the technique down with black paper and mm-hmm. pastel. Uh, for example, the stars. Well, pastel pencils I find are hard to get a really sharp pinpoint star. Yeah, you've got to um, use the sandpaper, right? With them to yeah. like hone that tip. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Or or even actually I experimented with gel white gel pens. Yeah, that's so what can... Berta was was talking oh, about. Nice. I, I bought the set. They're over on the other side of the room. We'll get them. But I bought this set she recommended. It was actually the cheapest set of white gel pens. It's just called the Jelly Roll pens. Not to be confused. <laughs> oh, I'm with. pretty sure I have one of those. Yeah, totally. And, yeah, and they work really. They work pretty good. I I've just been playing here at my desk, like when I'm waiting for Shane to show up or something. And yeah, I mean, you can see. Oh, they, yeah, they look pretty good. She was talking yes. about what she does is she puts the white ink down, and then she'll take a colored pencil when uh, there's a color, like a particularly colored star and she'll like, you know, for example, like an oh. M11, you know, there's that orangish star there and then color over that no with the way. appropriate colored, colored pencil. And it looks fantastic. I had to ask her about it because I thought she was fooling around with softwares because that's the only other way I've seen people right. do that before. But 
Oh, anyway, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. But yeah, so you've been experimenting a, a little bit as well. I haven't fully transitioned over. I find I go and do it. It's almost like that requires you to be more of a dedicated artist, in my opinion, because when I'm doing my regular sketches and then I transition to that, it takes two or three nights and then I can do them. But if I give it up for like two or three weeks or like this winter, yes. I haven't done any, I know it's, I have to go and start climbing the mountain all over again. It's just going to be basically starting right back at square one for me. Cause it, it is really like requires some sort of artistic ability to do it. And I have to like redevelop those skills all over again. Right. Yeah. I find too with white paper, there are way more sketchbooks available. Like you can find better sketchbooks with better paper if, if going with white paper, whereas black selections are, are fewer. I, I found this too. And there's a art store nearby. This was sort of a good, a good thing came out of a bad thing. The local Michaels burned down. And that's where most people buy their art supplies. And so this oh, art man. supply store started getting in more and more stuff. And they're kind of filling that niche now. And they've brought in these beautiful hardcover black paper books. And I was just wandering around in there one day. And I, and they're perfect. They're just like um, seven by eight or they're weird size, but they're a great size for sketching at the eyepiece. And I was so yes. excited. I'm like, this is going to be a game changer for what I'm doing. I wasn't telling them what I was doing. They would think it was so weird, but I was like, this, <laughs> this is going to be a game changer. And they're looking at me and I'm buying all these white charcoal and pastel <laughs> pens and sandpaper. They're like, what is this guy doing? So <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. But I, I bought some of those uh, hog brushes for the... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, and so I wore one out and I went back and I'm like, do you have anything tougher than a hog brush? They're like, what? <laughs> what were you doing to it? <laughs> oh, that's bought, awesome. Yeah, I bought some other ones. But anyway, yeah, the sketching is is fun. So you're pretty much sketching whenever you're, you're at the eyepiece, even with the 17 and a half. There's one thing I was going to ask is, do you find sketching at the eyepiece when you have to be up on the ladder of the 17 and a half inch scope? It, it, does that require a special skill set or do you find that fairly comfortable? For me, I've never sketched at a telescope where I needed to be on a ladder before. What's that like? And is, is that enjoyable? I haven't fallen off the ladder completely yet. <laughs> completely. <laughs> there have been some close calls, but uh it's it's not terrible i have i have definitely wondered whether it would be possible to like jerry rig like a bicycle seat with a hook on it that i could like hook onto a ladder rung <laughs> and like precariously perch upon the top of the bicycle seat and like sit i don't know i i, I will try it one day but at the moment it's it's comfortable enough to stand on the ladder that I haven't haven't sought out any major design. I find like if I go on a long run the day of uh, an observing session, my legs will be really tired on the ladder, but yeah. otherwise it's not bad. Let's talk about Hawaii. All right. Mm, tell us, tell yes. us about the Hawaii trip. Give us the oh, rundown. Man, Hawaii was amazing. The trip was not planned around the moon. 
And as I like to schedule like my observing when the moon is absent, there was really only one or two nights when we would be there with no moon in the sky. And that would be in the very early hours of the morning. So when we arrived, the weather forecast was not looking good for any of these potential moonless nights. And the only night was that first night that we arrived. So we, we literally got to Hawaii, got to our accommodations. And I said goodnight to my wife and son and got in the car and drove straight <laughs> up Mauna Kea, like right then and there at midnight in Hawaii. Like it's man. go time. Like this is it's now or never. <laughs> of course, it's 100% cloudy. Yeah. But like, this is the one chance, right? Like, you're not going to go to sleep. Like, yeah. no, that's not happening. We're going to drive all the way to the top, just to the visitor center and see what happens. Soon before reaching, like, it's just totally cloudy. And right before, maybe two miles before the visitor center, the sky's clear. We punched above the clouds. And yeah. oh, man, that was just electric to see that that sky beyond all hope clear <laughs> that's awesome that is so good oh but yes yeah, so many so many amazing sights from there it's it's just stunning I how many hours were you able to get in at the eyepiece uh probably about three hours total three or four hours Awesome. Yeah, it was it was a sprint. I planned the session very intensely because I knew I would have very limited time. So I knew exactly like what objects I wanted to prioritize. Yep. That was super key. I did a full session on Haleakala and I had it just so mapped out. You're just almost like a machine, right? You know right <laughs> where you're going right from one object to another because yeah. you just know that drinking from this well it's going to be a long time before you come back yes. to that tap and like you when i drove up i did two nights but there was like one night i arranged to be up there in the star city and i drove through like a hurricane on the way up it was like driving rain in that and then like you say you just sort of at at some point like at seven or eight thousand feet you just sort of break through the clouds yeah and then it's just like still and calm just like in the airplane right when you go through that cloud deck yeah it doesn't matter what's happening down below it's what's happening up top that matters oh yeah that's those are the moments where it just you just got to show up yeah and you know, maybe it won't be anything, but if it turns out good, like you can't trade that for the world. Mm-hmm. What did so- you think of Eta Karina that night? <laughs> oh, the whole, the whole Southern sky was amazing. Actually, when, by the time I got up there, Eta Karina was already set because it was so late at yeah. night, but um, basically Centaurus was at the meridian and so i i pretty much lived in there (laughs) for the majority of the night and actually there was a bit of cloud at the hugging the southern horizon i could see the southern cross flickering in and out 
But honestly, like it was one of the things I really wanted to plan out was to avoid the temptation to be like looking at the horizon. Like, oh, I want to see like what's the lowest declination I can see. No, no, like there, let's let's look high. <laughs> let's enjoy the views of things that I can see from home, but only barely. But here they're like 40 degrees in the yeah. above mm. the horizon. Like that was those were some of the best views, actually. Like some of the lower objects that I never get to see certainly were phenomenal to to look at but for example m83 which is very difficult to see at our latitude at 51 degrees north it it's it literally is 40 degrees up and you could see tremendous detail in it with just an eight inch you've got a couple sketches here the centaurus a and the omega centauri yes the omega centauri was um it was the first Southern object I looked at. The very, very first object I looked at in that observing session was M13. Because I wanted, before I looked at Omega Centauri, I wanted to kind of go back to baseline, go to something I know well, and just refresh my memory. Okay, here I'm using my 8-inch. With this eyepiece, like here's the view I know and love of M13. And then panned over to Omega Centauri. Oh, what? <laughs> like, what is actually going on right now? What am I looking at? Like, I literally almost fell over. It blew me away how big it is. The, oh, wow. the brightness was less bright than I was expecting. I've got to say, but the size of it was just tremendous. And from such a dark sky, resolution seemed infinite, like just in an eight inch telescope, very, very faint members, absolutely diffuse core, like not a, not a dense core at all. Like it just was like this ocean of super faint stars all even brightness like it was mind-blowing <laughs> i love that tactic too of looking at m13 first something you know very well and then going oh, to something brand new and just seriously you know, have that comparison fresh yeah That's awesome. and like i kept kind of going back and forth between the night between like omega centauri M13 and also M4 because that's another one that suffers greatly from our latitude. And honestly, I think M4 was better than M13. Like it was more interesting to look at, I found. Wow, the southern sky, globular clusters, man, in the southern sky. Like they've got it going on. It's so <laughs> epic. It's crazy. Every globular cluster is like way bigger than m13 it's wild i i pretty much just gobbled globular clusters that that night which was unexpected did you take a look at uh that false comet in the bottom of scorpius there uh, ngc 6231 yes yes i did i had a brief look at that because i i had looked at that one in nebraska mm -hmm. last summer but there even it was very 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 low mm -hmm. and so i mean it's a very bright open cluster so yep. it was punching through here it was just 
blasting, glowing bright, like unbelievable. Like a miniature version of the Alpha Alpha Persei, right? Like it looks like that yeah. sort of same sort of mm. yeah. I, I've seen it. I saw it from Haleakala, and it it truly blew me away. But I've seen it from forty four degrees north um, in Nova Scotia over the North Atlantic. No had way. A, had a couple of good mornings. That's yeah, amazing. I've got sketches of it over on the shelf. It really benefits from those uh, lower latitudes when you're down there at 20 degrees. It does. It really does. And I think that was, that was one of the, like as brief as my session was, I was really glad I spent time on familiar objects that are super low at, at my normal latitude, you know, views of Markarian's chain in Virgo was what, like it was literally at Zenith. Yeah. Oh, like that was gold, gold. And so many, so many other amazing surprises, but really had fun looking at the objects that I never get to see from here as well. How did you find, did you take the two inch filters I loaned you? I did. I didn't have time to even use them though. I was just like, ah, going from this object to the next object. And, and yeah, honestly, I don't even think I might've looked at like one planetary nebula, but otherwise it was, it was mostly just galaxies and globular clusters. So the, the filters uh, stayed in the case that night, but they did enjoy the trip to Hawaii. Yeah. One of my favorite places on earth, you know, astronomically and, and during the daytime, it's just uh, it's a wonderful place. Absolutely. Do you have any other further thoughts for listeners? One of the things I would, I would say is to just never trust the forecast. I can't even count the number of observing sessions that I've gone out and it's, it's showing to have mediocre skies and it just turns out to be an amazing night. You find something that's unexpected or maybe the, the sky is cloudy in one area and you jump to an area that you don't otherwise usually visit. Uh, yeah, I would just say go out even when the weather isn't optimal because there's always something to, to see and learn. Thanks a lot, Eric. This has been a ton of fun. Uh, your passion and your determination are very inspirational. So, um, this, this was, uh, very enjoyable for me and I'm going to take my telescope out and, uh, do some observing <laughs> now because it's just about getting to that time. Yes. No kidding. <laughs> it's, it's time. It's go time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. No, this was, this was a lot of fun. I very hope good. we get to, uh, meet up in grasslands sometime. That would be awesome. Well, thanks, Eric, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Dear listeners, please subscribe and do us a favor and share the show with other stargazers you know. And you can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. 